We're going to read from Luke chapter 2 in just a moment. Before we get there, I uh, just want to make you aware of a couple of things. Um, first, on a very positive note, uh, you see Carly back there. Would you stand for a minute? I don't know if Sam is still here, but Carly and Sam Taylor are here with us. Uh, Carly grew up here at North River, but they are missionaries working on campus outside of Pittsburgh and with an organization called CCO. So if you would like to find out anything about the work that they do, we support them here at North River, but uh, you can certainly grab Carly after the service. Also, uh, I want to make you aware that uh, Joyce Craven's mom passed away yesterday. Joyce has been one of our overseers for several years, and her mom, Ellie, often worshipped here. And then uh, I got notified very early this morning that uh, Jeanette Hull's biological father passed away this morning as well. So we're going to pray for those two families right now. God, we thank you in this Christmas season that you are the God of peace and that you communicate your love and your comfort to your children. And so we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit the counselor, the comforter, to both of these families to stand beside them here in this Christmas season as they are grieving loss of life, loss of loved ones. Thank you that you know how to do this better than anyone, but use us in the process too to encourage, to lift up, and to support during this time. We pray for their entire families, for, for Ed, for Joyce's sister. We ask that you will bless them and guide them all in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to read from Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. I'm primarily concerned this morning with two verses, the angelic announcement that shows up in verse 13 and 14, but for the sake of context, we're going to read this, this whole section, and let me ask you to do this with me. Here's the gospel. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. One question. Who's your one? We've been asking that question for the last several weeks. Who's your one? Who's the one person God has put most prominently on your heart to share your faith with, or to invite to Christmas Eve, or to talk about the meaning of Christmas over the next couple weeks. Fix that name in your mind. Let's pray for them right now. God, we pray for the folks who you've brought into our lives, family members, coworkers, friends, neighbors, and the one that's most prominent. We ask that you'll open their hearts and minds to want to know more about you and to pursue a relationship with you and we ask that you will open up the right time and the right place for us to share what we've learned, to share what you mean to us, and to see where the Holy Spirit takes the conversation. We pray that several of these, maybe even many of them, 
by the time of Christmas Day, will have come to bow the knee before Jesus the Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. In 1818, the assistant pastor of a small church, St. Nicholas Church in Obendorf, Austria, which is about 20 miles outside of Salzburg, was having a difficult time planning the church's Christmas Eve service. The church's organ was in disrepair, which meant that the organist could not play and the organist could not accompany the choir. So a few days before Christmas, Joseph Moore handed the organist some lyrics that he had penned about two years earlier, and he asked the organist, whose name was Franz Gruber, if he could write a tune to go with the lyrics that could be played on a guitar. Gruber didn't have much time. It was only two days away from Christmas Eve, but he took those lyrics and he wrote a simple tune that the two of them then sang for the first time on Christmas Eve. The song in German was called Stille Nacht, after the first line of the song, Stille Nacht, Heilige Nacht. People in the little chapel enjoyed it, but the song didn't get much notice until seven years later when the organ was being repaired. And the person who was working on the organ found a copy of the sheet music that was still on the organ seven years later. Soon the song was being passed around and sung all over Austria and then all over Europe. In 1863, the words were translated into English since German-speaking people had already been bringing the song here to the U.S. and singing it in German. The English version also became known by the first two words of that first verse, Silent Night. I love Christmas carols, and I'm going to ask you to do something with me. I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to sing a cappella, which is a fancy way of saying no accompaniment, no instruments, just voices, and we're going to sing Silent Night. I put the words for the first three verses on the back of your notes this morning, so here we go. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, round yon virgin mother and child, holy infant so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly Second verse, silent night, holy night, shepherds quake at the sight, glory stream from heaven afar, Silent night, holy night, Son of God, 
love's pure light, radiant beams from thy holy face. With the dawn of redeeming grace, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Well done, my friends. Now, that wasn't just filler because I'm short on material today. <laughs> but I don't know if you've noticed, there is something about Silent Night that actually makes us feel this sense of peace. In the days before country singer Travis Tritt made it big in Nashville, he spent years playing in small dives and out-of-the-way places, bars that were sometimes very dangerous. Lots of drunks starting bar fights. But he found a unique way to restore the peace when things started to get out of hand. Years later, he wrote about this and he said, just when the bar fights started getting out of hand, when bikers were reaching for pool cues and rednecks were heading for the gun rack, I'd pull out my guitar and start playing Silent Night. He said, it could be in the middle of July. And all of a sudden, these big, rough, tough characters would turn around and they would start singing Silent Night at the top of their lungs, some of them in tears. One of the lines, it's actually the final line of, of the first verse, says, sleep in heavenly peace. And there's a question that's been ringing through my mind all week as I've been thinking about this particular message. And the question is, why peace? Why does the angelic host, which could be either a choir or the army of angels, why do they appear in the skies on that particular night to the shepherds of Bethlehem? And why do they announce to the world that the peace of God has come? Isn't our God always a God of peace? Hasn't God always wanted peace with people? Did God need to declare something about peace that night? I've been thinking about that. Why peace? And what is that heavenly peace that we sing about? What is the heavenly peace that can quiet down a bar filled with drunk bikers? And how does that impact you and me? So I'd like to ask a different question. As we think about that peace, specifically what kind of peace was offered on that first Christmas Eve? And therefore, what kind of peace is offered to us today? Think about what's going on in the world right now. A week ago, a Saudi pilot training at Pensacola Naval Air Station killed three people and wounded eight more in the same base where my niece, who's a young Navy doctor, is based, and in the same building where all of her classes take place. That brings it very close to home for me. Pro-democracy protests have been breaking out all over Hong Kong, and they're opposed by riot police. This has been going on for months. Family members at American Thanksgiving dinner tables 
were stressed out and breathed huge sighs of relief if they got through dinner and nobody brought up politics this year. Because Democrat and Republican members of Congress despise and distrust each other at epic levels right now. And to top it all off, patriot haters are apoplectic over the possible, another possible Spygate allegation against the Patriots. And so I asked this question, where's the peace of Christmas right now? The deep question is, what kind of peace were the angels talking about? If you and I are to understand this passage, there's one verse that we really need to zero in on, and it's verse 14. And so there are four observations that I stumbled into this week as I was researching uh, verses 13 and 14 of Luke chapter 2. Passages I have preached about dozens and dozens of times, but this troubling question, where's the peace, why peace, what kind of peace are we talking about, they were ringing in my mind all week long. Here's the first discovery. Christmas doesn't promise world peace now. If you remember from the movie, Miss Congeniality does that, but Christmas doesn't. And so these two verses come to us. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now, some of the Christmas card images that we see were created by designers, and they lead us to think that the promise that we're given is for world peace now. Let me show you a couple of those. Here's the first one. This particular Christmas card uh, speaks of world peace. Can we show that one, Rhonda, 1A? Thank you. So the card seems to give off the idea that what God is promising and what we're delivering with our cards and with our greetings is world peace today. Here's the next one. This one celebrates a world of good wishes. Not a bad thought. I have a world full of good wishes for all of you, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be granted, right? Here's a third one. This one has several national flags and celebrates a world of peace. Is the world that we live in today completely at peace? No. Parts of it are. Grateful for that. But parts of it really are not. Now, these are all well-meaning and, and, and full of pleasant thoughts. There's nothing bad about any of these. They're all good. But this is the expectation of a popularized version of Christmas. And if this is the only understanding we have of the peace of Christmas, then something's gonna happen year after year. We're gonna find that we come up short. There are expe our expectations are up here that the world is gonna stop and experience this worldwide bliss, but then you break out the evening news or the morning newspaper and we find that our world performs at a much lower level. So, what was promised by the angel's announcement here in Luke chapter two? The first thing that was promised was the good news of the Savior's birth that we are told was for all the people. In a sense, this good news is for the entire world, whether people embrace it or not. So it is a worldwide message. And the good news specifically is that the Messiah had come, the chosen one, the one that the Jewish people were waiting for, but even though they didn't know it, the entire world was waiting for. And when the angels showed up in the sky, peace on earth was announced as a benefit 
to a group of people who meet two specific conditions. And the conditions are contained here in verse 14. Peace on earth is connected to the desire to glorify God. It's one of the reasons we sing praises at the Christmas season. That's the first condition, that we have to have that desire, we, that we want to honor God, that we want to glorify God. And, and there's no way to fully understand the context of this specific kind of peace apart from the glory of God. Here's the second condition. Peace on earth comes to those on whom the favor of God rests. How do we get that? How do we get to that place where we can say that the favor of God is on me, the favor of God is on you? here's the big idea that I want to get across this morning. Christmas highlights the pathway to peace with God that results in Jesus' gift of peace within your soul. Let me explain that with the next three observations. Here's the second one. Biblical peace, when we dig down deeper, allows us to flourish in the midst of chaos. Isn't that a great word, flourish? That's what God wants you to do. He wants you to flourish. Let me, I'll unpack that for you. So the announcement from the angels is this. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Think about the context of this promise. Jesus was born at a time with little war but little peace. Little war, but little peace. Approximately 25 to 27 years before Jesus was born, Rome brought about something that is known by historians as the Pax Romana, which means the peace of Rome. An unprecedented time where the empire was rarely at war. This lasted from 27 BC to about 180 AD. In other words, two full centuries where there was very little warfare going on in the known world at that time. But the peace of the Pax Romana was only celebrated by Romans. If you were not a Roman, peace with Rome always came at the end of a spear. And so other people groups were expected to do things Rome's way or else. For them, there was very little peace. And even for Romans, not all was so peaceful. Consider this. Several of the Roman emperors during this time died violent deaths during the Pax Romana. Caligula was a cruel and sadistic tyrant who engaged in drunken parties and orgies. Nero allegedly burned Rome to the ground and blamed Christians, then sending them to the Colosseum to die violent deaths before crowds that lusted for blood and gore. And Emperor Titus, a former general, had the citizens of Jerusalem slaughtered, the temple destroyed, and the city burned to the ground in 70 AD. Jesus did not live in a time that was characterized by world peace or in a region of the world that was dominated by world peace, even though the political peace of the world was celebrated in the Pax Romana. In contrast to the Pax Romana comes the Old Testament concept of shalom. Can you say that with me? Shalom. It's a rich Hebrew word that loosely translated means peace, yet it means so much more than that. Shalom means much more than the absence of hostility or the absence of strife or the absence of war. Shalom is a rich word that speaks of wholeness. But it's not just a wholeness for me or a wholeness for you. 
In order to experience shalom, we have to also desire the wholeness of others. So true shalom involves the rich, full concept of flourishing. It's a great word. When one flourishes, one grows, one expands, one emerges. When when you flourish, your gifts rise to the top. When you flourish, you are succeeding, you are prospering. Everything that you do is blessed in a number of ways. And God desires for us to flourish even in the midst of a world filled with chaos. Shalom is when people flourish and where systems of justice and mercy and economy also flourish. In the Old Testament, Psalm 122, verse 6, tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And then David adds a promise that comes on the back side of that. He says, may those who love you prosper. In other words, those who love the people of God If they're praying for the people of God and praying specifically for that city where the people of God were centered in that era, may they prosper, may they flourish. That does not simply point to an absence of strife. It calls for the flourishing of God's people. So when the angelic host ties the birth of Jesus to God's peace on earth, They are telling us that it is possible to experience God's peace despite all the chaos that the world can throw your way. I don't know what's going wrong in your world. I don't know what's going wrong in your life, in your sphere of influence right now. But I know within our church family, we have those who are mourning deeply over the loss of a loved family member. Talked with a guy this morning who just lost his job. Imagine that, uh, uh, just a little more than a week before Christmas. And his his family's grappling with that. Some of us are dealing with family members or friends that are very sick or very ill. Some of you are working in a climate that is extremely hostile toward you for whatever reason. There's somebody who doesn't want you there. There's somebody who wants your job. There's somebody who's jealous. Or there's somebody who just wants to take you down because you're not believable because there's too much goodness that comes out of your mouth. (laughs) Right? And the promise comes, not that the world will be at peace, but God can bring a peace that transforms the human soul, the human spirit, the inside of you in such a profound way that you can endure anything. Christmas highlights the pathway to peace with God that results in Jesus' gift of peace within your very own soul. Now here's the third observation. And I need you guys to stay with me on this because I'm going to challenge you a little bit. We're going to go more deeply into the theology of Christmas than we've ever done in the 30 years of this church in the next few minutes. So give me your best, okay? You with me? Christmas ends our war with God and brings peace with God. Some of you are looking at me saying, I'm not at war with God, so hang in there for a minute. Look at this verse again. The the angels are in the sky. Whether they're singing this or shouting this, we don't really know. Heavenly host can mean it's a a massive choir. It can mean it's a powerful army that is there to announce and show the backup that Jesus actually has. 
They say, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. If we want to understand the essence of Christmas, it is absolutely essential that we understand exactly what the angels were singing about that night. And here's my dilemma. The Bible that I was raised with as a kid was the King James Version, all the these and thous written in the early 1600s. The King James Bible translates this promise this way, on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Does that sound familiar to you? Yeah, that's the part that usually makes it into the Christmas cards, peace and goodwill toward men. And it's also preserved in some of our most ancient carols. But we read the New International Version, which is a newer translation, only about 35, 40 years old, that reads this way, on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And I wondered why the difference And so I looked at about 40 different translations of the Bible, and what I found is all the newer ones follow the pattern of the NIV. Here's another example. The ESV, the English Standard Version, reads, On earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so what was racking my brain was, why does virtually every recent translation disagree with the King James Bible that I grew up with and follow the pattern that we see in the New International Version. And the answer is wrapped up in the technical accuracy or inaccuracy of ancient texts. So let me take you back into time a little bit. When the King James Bible was first translated into English, 1609, it was translated from a Greek text known as the Textus Receptus, or the Received Text. The Textus Receptus was based on the very first Greek translation to be put into print, which was done by Erasmus in 1516. The problem is that Erasmus referred only to seven Greek manuscripts, and they they were late manuscripts. That doesn't mean anything to you yet, but it will. In other words, there were older, more reliable Greek transcripts that Erasmus did not have access to. So think of these transcripts. In the ancient days, before modern copying, the Bible was transcribed letter for letter, word for word, hand by hand, and there were monks and priests to whom we have a great debt who copied painstakingly the New Testament texts, the Old Testament texts. You know what happens when you go through that process? You have one person that makes a copy, and then the next person makes a copy of their copy. The farther you go down the line, where copy after copy after copy, there is the potential for human error. This is not error with God. This is human error in the way these things are carried over. And so when you look at a variety of these ancient manuscripts, there are about 10,000 whole or partial fragments of the New Testament, which exists in ancient Greek. There are some slight differences. Most of it doesn't matter a hill of beans theologically. Most of them are just spelling mistakes. But there happens to be one difference between the text that Erasmus used and hundreds of older texts that he didn't have access to. And there was one letter that was added to one word. It was an S. And it changes the meaning of that verse and it changes the meaning of how we understand the promise of Christmas. In the King James, I'm going to quote some Greek to you, not to impress you or anything, but just so you know, I'm not making this up. In the King James, the phrase has three Greek words, en anthropois eudokia. 
So anthropoise is, uh, comes from the word uh, that we get anthropology from. It means uh, man, man or men. So the translation would be, um, it makes goodwill a parallel to peace as if the angel is saying peace and goodwill to men, that these are two equal things that, that come side by side. The, the difference in the more ancient manuscripts renders that phrase en anthropois eudokias, where there's a letter S at the end of eudokia. And it changes that word from a noun to an adjective. And so the rendering means something more like um, that this applies to men or this applies to people not as another promise, but as a condition that's expected of us that we will become people of goodwill. Here's another example. The New American Standard Bible tra translates that same phrase, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now you might think for a minute, wait a minute, what are you saying here, Paul? Are you saying that God isn't pleased with everyone? Yes. Yes. The Bible is very, very clear that God is not pleased with all people at all time. And essentially, the Bible teaches that people are not naturally at peace with God. Here's a little proof of that. Romans 5.10 says, While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So enemies, and there are people who are far away from God, and there's something about the work of Jesus coming into this world and his entire mission that brings us near to God. This comes as a shock to many people. We think, wait a minute, I like God? God likes me, we got this thing, the good thing going, I'm okay with God, God's okay with me, it all works. We are often unaware of the things that block our experience of true peace, the very kind of peace that Jesus came to give, and therefore of how good the message of Christmas really is. This is why this matters. People in our world are often trying to separate Christmas peace from glorifying God. Have you ever experienced that? Or they don't want you to talk about God. They don't, don't bring me into the religious stuff. Don't invite me to a church service. I don't want to be a part of that. Or Christmas uh, people in our world are often seeking peace apart from Jesus the Messiah. They're fine with us singing Christmas carols and talking about Christmas and the trees and the tinsel and everything else until you bring up the J word. Ever had that happen in a conversation? And the hands go up. Don't tell me about you, Jesus. You just wrecked the whole thing. Can't we just have a normal, simple non-religious Christmas. <laughs> and some people in our world are often searching for peace without faith in Jesus the Savior. And the Bible says when we do that and we separate Jesus from peace, what we get is something very different. And we are actually at enmity with God, we are at odds with God, we are even at war with God at times. It's why the angels say things like, fear not, do not be afraid, or why Jesus says, take heart. We get intimidated by God. When are we at war with God? 
there are a variety of times when we're at war with God. Sometimes when we're trying to separate Christmas, the Christmas peace from God's expectations in our own lives. And we kind of push that stuff away. Sometimes when we know that God has a purpose that he's wired us up for and, and we want to move away from that. Sometimes when our desires are meant to be curbed, but we want to live them out to the fullest of expression to, to get the most out of life in that moment, no matter what God says or anybody else says. And when somebody starts to mention something like God has expectations or God has moral values, we get threatened because we've actually put ourselves in place of God where we're the authority, not God. And we're at war with God. Simple question. Have you ever experienced a time when you felt like you were at war with God? There was spiritual warfare going on in your life and you're pushing God away because you knew he wanted something from you that you didn't want to give? Or he wanted you to move in a direction where he was calling you but you're just resisting the whole time? Ever experienced that? Have you ever thrown up walls between you and God? Where all of a sudden something gets in the way, and it's not that God moved or God changed, but there's something that we want, there's something that we demand that right now gets in the way of that experience. This is why Christmas matters to us. Last observation, this is the answer. Jesus is our peace. I have to leave the gospel and go forward a couple of letters in the New Testament to Ephesians. One verse, Ephesians 2.14 says, speaking of Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. This is what led the angels to sing that night. They were aware of this radical situation where God has such a phenomenal love for human beings, but human beings have such a phenomenal pull toward whatever God doesn't want us to do. And the angels are marveling over this and saying, how does God put up with all this? Why does God put up with this? Look at these people. They do the dumbest, stupidest, most obstinate things, especially the Atwaters. It's a bigger problem than we realize. But God loves people so much that he then sent his very own son, part of himself, sent by God the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to solve our problem. God takes on our problem that we could never solve. And the reason that the angels sang was that they understood what was about to unfold, that Jesus destroys every barrier that gets between us and God. Every act of my rebellion against God's expectation that gets in the way, he came to destroy. Jesus came to take down the walls that you and I put up. Walls between us and God, walls between us and other people. But when we acknowledge that our sin, our pride, and our insistence on having our own way is the problem, and when we put our trust in Jesus instead, We are no longer at war with God, but instead we are at peace with God. And when we transfer our trust to Jesus, he fills us with this inner sense of peace 
that is caught up in the very presence of the Holy Spirit inside your life, making you alive like never before and giving you an advantage that everybody else in this world doesn't have unless they know the same Savior. They walk through the chaos trying to create their own man-crafted peace where he came to give us a heaven-sent peace that is capable of transform, transforming and, and, and going beyond every degree of difficulty and chaos and brokenness that this world has. That is why the angels sang in the skies that night. Because the peace they were announcing changes everything. No matter what it looks like outside. Because it starts here. But just in case there's anybody here who has not yet embraced that, here's your opportunity to do this. I'm going to pray a short prayer. You can repeat after me. And then I'm going to pray for all of us that we won't go through the motions of proclaiming peace to each other, that we will carry within us the life-transforming peace that changes the human soul and that enriches your life and that gives you the empowerment from God to live in such a way that everybody else starts to ask, what have you got? And then you can talk about Christmas. And you can talk about Luke 2, 13 and 14 and the reason that the angels sang in the sky that night. Here we go. Father God, hear the person who may be quietly or even out loud praying along with me. Lord, I've been putting up walls. And I have felt far from you. Sometimes I've even been conscious that I've been at war with you. And I don't want to fight you any longer. I recognize that I'm the problem. But that you can change the internal part of whatever my soul really is, the part of me that's uniquely me, so that I become somebody new on the inside. So I'm shifting my trust from myself to be religious enough to what Jesus has done on my behalf. And I'm trusting that he's the savior that you sent and that your spirit can change me from the inside out. And so here I come, doubts and all, giving you what little trust I have. Make me alive and new and forgiven and empowered. God, hear those of us who are longtime Christ followers who may be praying a slightly different prayer. Lord, sometimes I'm at war with you too. I understand salvation. I understand grace. I've embraced it. But I still want everything my own way. And even though you've given me your spirit, there are walls I've created. Lord Jesus, I give you permission to tear down every wall that I have erected 
that I might more fully experience the peace of God today, right through this Christmas season, and every day the rest of my life. Help me to hold on to the words of the angels, the words of the gospel, and truly know and live the peace of God. Through Jesus I ask. Amen. I have one word for you at the end here. I wish you shalom. Shalom.